So if you want to follow along in one of the green Bibles that are in the corners of the sanctuary, you're going to be turning to the New Testament. So the second set of page numbers, page 54. And if you want to read in your own Bible, we're looking at Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that story begins at verse 25. And for those of us... um who want to maybe look at a picture of the story, we're going to put a picture from, or a painting uh, of this tell. Now this this piece of work is by Virgil Solis, and it is found in a Bible from the 16th century, 1588, the Luther Bible. Uh, and I I think that that's quite something. <laughs> and in in one sense, the pictures are there, right, to help people who don't who didn't know how to read because Bibles were still slowly making their way into the common person's hands. Uh, the pictures are there to help us understand the point of the story. Um, and so I'm just going to quickly talk about these characters, and then we'll talk about why it's significant. And you in your handouts in your worship folders, you can see this same explanation. So when we listen to a story like this and a character is kind of given a generic title, like a man, we think of somebody who looks like ourselves, right? Someone who belongs to the same ethnic background as us, someone who belongs to the same uh, cultural milieu as us. Uh, We think of somebody like ourselves because we tend to think from our own point of view, and that's totally fine. So here you can see that the European uh, centric picture is of uh, a white guy who's hurt, that the story is of a white guy who's hurt. And then you've got the priest figures and other people who have walked away. So other Europeans who have walked away and the person who is giving aid to the man in need is pretty much the largest enemy to the European people at the time, a member uh, who were called Turks. He's wearing a turban. That's how we know that he's a Turk. Now, if this story were to be uh, told today, this would be somebody who was of Muslim faith uh, because that's the region that's being represented there. And Turks were considered dangerous to the Europeans. And so here... We are told in the book that is being used to teach the people about the point of this story, uh, the same, they context, contextualized it. And we'll understand that a little bit more as we read the story. So the Samaritan is represented by the least respected person of that time in this picture. And I invite you to do that honest work of naming who the least respected person of your time might be, of your opinions might be. I don't think that it's a far stretch for us to think that having someone of Muslim faith represented in this in this story as the one who ends up being the hero is far from what Jesus is talking about in this story. All right. So let's read more and then we'll we'll talk about it. And then we'll just go ahead and leave the painting up for a bit. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so we'll take that painting down now. And if you want to look at back at it, you can look at the insert. So a Samaritan at the time was uh, at best considered by Jewish people to be a proselyte, someone who didn't have uh, their beliefs quite right, who also did not practice the right kind of religious practices, even though they shared the same holy book. They shared the Torah. And so many of their beliefs could line up quite well. And at worst, a, pros- uh, a Samaritan was viewed by the Jewish community as a heretic of the faith as someone with dubious theology and inadequate religious practice, and, to make it one step worse, considered to be as bad as the Philistines to the Jewish people. And here, Jesus makes someone whom the Jewish people do not agree with, whom they look down upon and separate themselves from, the hero of the story. Here, Jesus makes the Samaritan the most emotionally mature person in the group. As we have been studying over these last seven weeks about growing into emotionally healthy spirituality, we have, we're returning to an idea that we looked at at the beginning. That emotional maturity and knowledge of God do not always come together in the same person. That you can have a lot of knowledge about God and the right things to do for God, but not have this emotional maturity that is key to being able to love like God. And you can be emotionally mature 
without having full knowledge of God. And I don't want you to confuse this idea that because you're emotionally mature, that means that you will have salvation. That's not the point of this story. This is not about proving or gaining salvation through works in any way. And this is not me saying uh, it's more important to be emotionally mature than it is to know the ways to be religious. Okay? This is about coming to understand that these two things need to grow in us through the work of becoming at one or united with Christ. The goal of a lot of these pathways that we have been studying together. So let's think about this story a little bit. And let's think about it in the sense of uh, the term that we prayed this morning, of borders or boundaries. I'll probably use the word boundaries because that's the one I was thinking about. But borders and boundaries are the same thing, right? Borders and boundaries tell you how far you should go. And they tell you where you're safe, right? And as religions develop, they tend to want to define those things quite clearly. So what we see in this story today, and it's the fall, it's the fall of the priest and the Levite in being able to show love to the, to the man who's injured. Borders and boundaries are the things also that tell us who's in and who's out, right? They define and identify communities. And in the Old Testament, they served that specific purpose of showing who were the people of God. God used very physical, tangible signs for, for the people, right? Circumcision is one. Not wearing mixed clothing was another. There were all of these actual signs that people could look at and say and understand what religious community you belong to, that you were a Hebrew, or an Israelite, right? But what we see Jesus doing in the New Testament is expanding the boundaries, expanding the borders of the understanding of who are the people of God. Because in Jesus, all nations, all tribes, all languages, all peoples are invited in. And the identity of God's people is no longer found in these tangible physical borders but are found in the fruit of the Spirit, are found in their gentleness and their kindness and their patience and their compassion and their mercy and their love. In Jesus, we learn a new way of being marked in our community. So Jesus tells this story to show this change. And, oh, the other thing I should say, uh, I learned a lot of this stuff from Ken Bailey this week, so giving credit where credit is due. So Ken Bailey talks about how one of the things that happened to set a boundary or a border in this religious community uh, was to understand what it meant or what the definition of a neighbor was. So who is my neighbor The lawyer asked Jesus, because if I know who my neighbor is, I know what line of obligations I need to meet to them. I know what person is in my community versus out of my community. And there are some very clear 
Old Testament teachings about treating your neighbor as a family member or seeing your family as your neighbor, seeing your family's kin as your neighbor, right? And the Old Testament also teaches about how we ought to treat the foreigner who is in our community. So we have both of those things present there. But it's a lot easier to be nice to people you like and nice to people you know are like you, isn't it? Like, let's just be honest, right? Let's just be honest. And so if we can focus on who our neighbor is, when it's somebody that we feel comfortable with, then we're going to choose to focus on that piece rather than understanding how to make the foreigner our neighbor. So that's kind of what's happening in this tale. And we see that because at the time, there continued to be clothing pieces that marked you and showed you what member of the, what community you belong to, what region of Palestine you're from, as well as your dialect and your speech. And so if you could look at somebody, you could tell what community they belong to, or you could listen to them talk and you could tell what community they belong to. And by that, you could tell whether or not they were your neighbor, whether they belong to the same community as you. But here we have a man who is stripped of his clothing and who is unconscious, who you cannot look at his clothing to tell where he's from, and who cannot speak. And therefore, you cannot tell by listening to him what community he belongs to. And so a priest comes along the road and is faced with this challenge. For one, he doesn't know whether or not he is within boundary lines of helping one of his neighbors, or if he is helping a sinner. And by helping a sinner, he, be, he might be making himself unclean. And if he's making himself unclean as a priest, he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and take part in a public ritual cleansing ceremony. So other people will see that he has become unclean. So his reputation is at stake. And he's thinking about the boundary lines of what his job for God requires him to do because of the rules that have been set in place, the border lines for what's appropriate for him and what's inappropriate for him. And thinking about all of those things. Oh, and if he can't even tell because he can't even get close enough to see if the man is dead. And if the man is dead, he becomes even more unclean for touching someone who is dead because he's a priest. So here he has all of these obligations. Here he has all of these borders that have been put in place that tell him what his role is, that help to paint a picture for him about what specifically he should do with his life. And he decides to stay within them instead of taking the risk of crossing over and providing help to someone who is clearly in need. Now, it should also be noted that um, Ken Bailey argues that the priests at the time were considered to be pretty uppity class, and not in a, like, bad way, but just in an economic way. And so he he was probably riding a horse, which meant he could have physically assisted this man by putting him on the horse, right, to take him to safety. And that matters because the Levite comes along 
And the Levite is an assistant priest, so he has a lot of the similar kinds of borders or boundaries on what's appropriate for him in terms of being involved. But he's not as high class as the priest, and so he's on foot. And so it's a little bit more work for him to provide assistance to this man. And the other piece that, along with everything we've just talked about for the priest that applies to the Levite, is that this road, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, is actually quite dangerous. At the time, it was referred to as the blood road because there were lots of robbers hiding in lots of little cracks and rocks and caves and behind trees, so to speak, along this very steep and hard-to-travel road. And so it's easy for us to imagine and put ourselves in the place of that Levite. It's easy for us to say, (coughs) excuse me, to understand that my personal safety is going to be put at risk if I cross the boundary of what is safe for me to do, to provide aid to this other human being. Especially when I don't know if he's my neighbor. Especially if I don't know whether or not I'm obligated to help him. See how we can start getting ourselves off the hook? For things. So then comes the Samaritan. Who undoes everything that the robbers have done to this man. The robbers have stripped him of his money, have stripped him of his clothes, have beat him and have left him to die. And here comes the Samaritan man who is obviously riding a horse or has a whole has animal of some kind, maybe a donkey, who has this, rather than a whole list of borders and boundaries that he has to think about whether or not he should cross, follows his gut reaction. Notice that the text says that he is moved with pity for the injured man. He has the same holy book where this idea of who a neighbor is has come from. And yet he decides to enter into the conflict of crossing boundaries and borders that have been put in place to help him understand how he ought to live. To bring assistance. To heal what has been beaten and tend to what has been broken. To take this man and to stay with him overnight. To pay for him to continue to get rest. Two days wages he pays, which is enough to, co- to give this man time, two weeks of rest at the end. Two weeks. And he promises to return. And added on top of that, is the fact that at the time, according to Ken Bailey, it would be very common for families to seek revenge for someone who has been injured in this way, which I think most of us can identify a little bit of the inkling, at least, to want to take revenge as a way of seeking justice. And this man allows himself to be publicly identified with the situation as an outsider to the community. This man puts his own life at risk, not only in rescuing him on a dangerous road, but 
and staying the night with him in a public place and promising to return to that same place. This Samaritan man has mercy and compassion and love on a stranger. The Levite and the priest who should have been able to do the same thing could not show because they had not grown in their maturity to be able to separate obligations that had been laid out with the will of God in the moment. When we look at this story, there's lots of good stuff to pull from it. But there's this one line from Ken that I want to share with you. Salvation comes to the wounded man in the form of a costly demonstration of unexpected love. Is that not the work of Christ for us? Salvation comes to the wounded man in the form of the costly demonstration of unexpected love. This is who we seek to follow. And this is not to say that having borders and boundaries of the activities or the people we want to associate with is a bad idea, right? There is something important about keeping yourself pure and knowing who to avoid because of your own habits and patterns and temptations and associations. But when we let the rules and the boundaries that we have added to the intent and the will of God be the thing that guides us more than seeking union with Christ in all things. When we are more focused on finding the right definition of who we ought to help rather than seeing the work of Christ calling us to serve all people, which was the original call of the Israelites, wasn't it? To be a blessing to all nations, no matter what they believed. God didn't say, if they're a Christian only. And there are times in the New Testament where we're called to live a specific way and to serve one another in this Christian community in a specific way, but it's never meant to be only here. It's never meant to be only here. But it's to be willing to live in the tension of seeing the humanity and the image-bearing of God in all people. Soren Kierkegaard says something to that effect. When we think about what it means to go from not loving God with all of us, all of ourselves, mind, heart, strength, will, having all the knowledge, we don't know until we know. Right? That perfect tense knowing from 1 John. Until we live that truth. Best seen in loving our neighbor. Best seen in not providing a definition of who our neighbor is, but understanding that our neighbor is anyone. So SK says, to love one's neighbor means, while remaining within the earthly distinctions allotted to one, to will to exist equally for every human being without exception. So to support 
the right to exist of every human being without exception. God created every human being and has willed them to exist without exception. And as we are united with Christ, and when we find that the boundaries and the borders of what we think is right or what is more comfortable for us meets this opportunity to live this will of God, we will find that we have an opportunity to see how much we have matured. We will find that we will see how much we have learned to love with the love of Jesus. Which is not to say that we don't hope and pray for the salvation of the nations. But it's to say that we do not put a border or a parameter on who we serve or how we serve them. But to seek to support the will and the right to exist that God has given to every human being. Amen. So as we think about uh, what we want to talk to God about in this time of silence, uh, I, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will use these words to help identify in you some areas where you need to change your attitude about who a neighbor is. This is from a guy named Franz Leanhart. One cannot define one's neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. And Jesus will not allow boundaries to be set so that people may feel they have completed their obligation to God. Because isn't that what boundaries really help us to do? They kind of help us give check checks that I've done this in service to God and I don't need to go any further. But what God instead, through Jesus, invites us to is to understand that the Spirit will lead us to places without borders. So if you want to take a few minutes to think about this, we'll sing our song of response and continue to ask the Spirit to guide us.